Well, you can be seated. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke 12, which is where we'll be this morning. A um, little taste of what we're going to be doing tonight uh, just now. One of the things I'm most excited about tonight is that uh, we have three songs being sung at our night of worship tonight that are originals for our congregation, that two of them have been written by people in our worship ministry, uh, and then one of them uh, was written by our songwriting team in our worship ministry. So three kind of Seaford originals, if you will, uh, tonight. So I can't wait for that. I'm just uh, so excited to be here tonight at 6.30, so I hope you'll join us. Um, As you're turning to Luke 12... Story I heard once uh, was about John Rockefeller, of course, uh, one of the richest men in the history of uh, this nation, and uh, probably argue one of the richest men in the history of the world. And when he died, there was a man who was curious about how much was left behind, so he set up an appointment with one of Rockefeller's aides. And he came to him and he said, so how much money did John Rockefeller leave? And uh, the guy looked at him and said, well, he left all of it, right? None, none of it, none of it went with him. And that just underlines the point to us that you do not get to take the treasures of this world with you when you go, uh, regardless of where you're going to spend your eternity, whether you're going to spend your eternity with Christ in heaven or you're going to spend your eternity separated from him and all that is good, Uh, You don't take the things of this world with you when you go, and the things of this world will have uh, no bearing. The possessions, the material things of this world ultimately have no bearing when you stand before God in judgment one day. And yet so many people live consumed with a desire to have more, to have more of this world. And what we'll see in this passage this morning is that that is a foolish pursuit. That is a vain pursuit. That is a waste of our years uh, here on this earth. It's the opposite of the sort of mindset that we ought to have as followers of Jesus. Uh, In this passage we're looking at, there is a shift because Jesus is interrupted by a demand for uh, arbitration by uh, this, this, this man, and he responds by launching into uh, some teaching about how loosely we should hold the things of this world, the material things of this world. And, and this teaching is going to stretch really all the way into uh, chapter 13, uh, all the way up to verse 9. And then when he gets to verse 10 in chapter 13, it'll say, and he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. That provides kind of a break for us. And, uh, but all the way up until then, it's really one long stretch of teaching outside of a, a brief interruption by Peter in chapter 12, verse 41. So this morning, we really begin a lengthy stretch of teaching from Jesus here in the book of Luke. So let me read it for us, starting in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who appointed me as a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, beware and be on guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, 
soul. You have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. There's a question and answer here in verses 14 and 15. There's an illustration in verses 16 through 20, and then you get um, an exhortation from Jesus in verse 21. That's our structure this morning, okay? Question and answer, you get an illustration, you get an exhortation, but in, in all of it, Jesus has something specific to say to those who think they need more in this world. In verse 13, this man asked Jesus uh, to... Uh, go to his brother and to tell him to divide the family inheritance with him. When he says to tell him, the Greek word for tell means to advise. So he's saying, advise my brother. Go give counsel to my brother and tell him to divide the inheritance with me. In uh, first century uh, culture of Judaism, if you are the oldest brother in the family, okay? So like in my family, we have Beckett, who's going to turn 10 this week, which is crazy, when I got here, you could hold him in two hands, you know what I mean? And he's about to turn 10, and you can no longer hold him in two hands. Um, and uh, then I've got my seven-year-old, and I've got little Millie. But uh, Beckett would be, uh, he, he would have right to double inheritance. He would have right to a double portion of the inheritance over Everett. That was just part of the, the benefits of being the oldest brother. And so it seems like what's going on here is this is a younger brother probably coming to Jesus saying to him, hey man, tell my older brother to divide it up evenly. So to, to give up his right to double inheritance and to divide it evenly with me. And uh, this is not a foreign request. In Numbers 27, there's a dispute over inheritance. It's brought to Moses. And so in light of that, it became kind of a tradition for the rabbis to do what Moses did in Numbers 27 and to help be arbitrators in situations where there are family disagreements over inheritance. So this is not a foreign request. This is not out of nowhere. Jesus has been called a rabbi uh, by the people. And so he's looking at him and saying, well, if he's a rabbi, then he ought to be able to help me with this issue. But Jesus says to him in verse 14, um, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Who made me the administrator of justice over you? Who made me the divider between you and your brother? Jesus clearly has no interest in being involved in this. And let's keep in mind that he's a rabbi, but he's not a rabbi because he went through the rabbinical training the way that others would have gone through the rabbinical training. Uh, Jesus was learning how to make tables with Joseph. Right? He didn't go through the rabbinical training that like Paul did, where you read that Paul came up in the school of Gamaliel, uh, which was a very respected rabbi during that time. Jesus didn't go through that. He was a rabbi because the people heard him teach, and he had so much authority that the people laid their hands on Jesus and said, you're a rabbi. Right? They gave him that title. And so in light of him not being uh, a, an, a, an official rabbi who's gone through the rabbinical training, there is no obligation for him to be involved in this. He doesn't have to get involved, and he doesn't want to be involved. And he actually responds with teaching here. He says, Beware and be on guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Beware. Take heed. Be careful. Right? Be perceptive. 
And be on your guard. Guard your heart in a way where you're not going to violate God's Word in the way that you deal with material things. Be, beware and be on guard against every form of greed. If you have an English Standard Version, it says every form of covetousness. This is the insatiable desire to have more. It's when you just get a new iPhone in August, and then a newer iPhone comes out in October, and suddenly your iPhone's not enough. Because you look at the other one and you go, I've got to have the newest one. It's when you get a brand new lawnmower, and then your neighbor shows up, and they have a new lawnmower, and you're peeking over the fence going, I kind of wish I had the one that they have. Maybe I ought to get rid of this one and get that one. Right? It, it, it's when you get a promotion at work and you have a certain amount of money, but you're thinking about the other guy who got a promotion and is getting more money than you. Or it's when you don't have a new lawnmower, don't have a new iPhone, didn't get the promotion, and you're still looking at those who did get those things and you're even more jealous because you're like, they got it and I didn't get it. This is covetousness, right? Coveting is uh, something that is prohibited by the Lord in His moral law, right? Do not covet is one of the Ten Commandments. Don't take the stuff God's given you and look at it and go, it's not enough. I've got to have more. I've got to have what the world has. I've got to have what everybody else has. Jesus is saying, don't live your life like this. Always wanting more things because true life is not found in things. Even if you've got a bunch of stuff. Your life is not wrapped up in that stuff. And so guard your heart against this attitude where nothing is ever enough. And Jesus illustrates the reality of this for them in a parable. The land of a rich man produces plentifully, right? It's very productive. And this man starts to think to himself, what am I going to do with all my crops? I've got nowhere to store my crops. Now, is that really true? Does the man in the parable actually have nowhere to store his crops? Well, in verse 18, he says, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns. So clearly, he has a place to store his crops. He's got barns. The issue is that he has too much, apparently. He has collected too many things to be able to store in those barns. The Greek word for store means to gather together. He's got nowhere to gather together his abundance. So verse 18 is his solution. He says, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and all my goods. So this is his solution then for his abundance. It's bigger barns. Doesn't seem to stop to think about anybody else. Doesn't seem to stop to think about how he might be able to give some of what he has away. To go ahead and fill his barns and take the surplus and then go and, and find people who are in need and say, you can have my crops. I'm going to bless you with these things. And his self-centeredness is proven by his spirituality in verse 19. Look, he doesn't pray to God, does he? He doesn't say, well, Lord, what do you want me to do with this extra stuff? Do you want me to build bigger barns, Lord? Do you want me to give it away, Lord? Like, there, there's no praying that goes on here to the Lord. He instead prays to himself. I mean, this is weird. Like, you, you, nobody does this. Nobody says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods. Like, you don't talk to your own soul like that unless you are incredibly self-centered. So he says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. 
Many goods. The soul is the entire inner self. He's literally talking to his self in a prayerful way. It's it's atheistic. It's godless. This is totally earthly-minded. It's the opposite of Colossians 3, verse 2, which says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. There's no thanksgiving toward God here. There's no gratitude toward God here. God is totally written out of the equation. And so he tells himself to do what? Um, he, He tells himself to relax. Take your ease. Cease from work. Right? It's, it's retirement. Welcome to leisure. Right? It's, it's early retirement. Now, I, I just want to say to you, there's nothing wrong with retirement. Okay? There's nothing evil about retirement. But if retirement consumes you and it is the thing that you were living for then it's absolutely an idol and it's a foolish idol as all idols are um, for you to put on your altar and to bow down in front of but that's what this man is doing if somebody desires more so they can be lazy that's never going to be a generous person Okay, understand that. If you desire more so that you can be lazy and do nothing, you'll never be a generous person. And here's why. You'll always guard your abundance because you know if you lose it, your leisure and your comfort are threatened. And so you'll never want to let go of it. You'll always guard it. Not all hardworking people are generous. But most generous people tend to be hardworking. They'll work hard so they can be generous and so they can continue to be generous. But not this man. He says to himself, eat, drink, and be merry. Right? This has become such a famous uh, line, right? Three very famous words, eat and, and drink and, and marry. He's talking about you know, fill your belly, refresh yourself, rejoice. Don't rejoice in God, right? That's not where the rejoicing is for this man. The rejoicing comes in the abundance. The rejoicing comes in the leisure that the abundance has provided. It's easy to see what he's living for. Everything is about him. Everything is about self. Everything is about how his own pleasure can be advanced. It's not about other people, and it's certainly not about God. There are a couple of lies we can point out about the mindset of this man that are important to consider when we talk about money. Number one, first lie this man believes is that this moment is all there is. The right here and now, this moment is all there is. And when you wake up in the morning and you get in your car and you jump in the interstate and you're driving to work, Understand that around you, the people driving those cars around you, 95% of them, if not more, they are living with that mindset. That what goes on in this life is all that matters. That the right here and now is all that matters. That this moment is all there is. This is the destination, this is the main event. And so lay up goods on this earth because this earth is the only place to experience goodness. Eternity is not in view for most of the people that you walk around with every day. 
They're not thinking about forever. They're not thinking about standing in front of God one day. They're not thinking about what happens after you die. They're thinking about the here and the now because they've bought the lie that this is all there is. The more secular, the more humanistic, the more... um, the, 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 the more that God has written out of the equation in our society, the more people think this way. So it is all around us. The man in the parable, it's like a death row inmate choosing his final meal. The death row inmate, this morning I, I went to eat a chocolate muffin, so from 8.30 to 9 we have, just in case you don't know, we got our fellowship back, okay? We're in the donut room and, and we don't have the Krispy Kremes because we're not quite ready, you know, with the Delta variant and all that to all be picking through Krispy Kremes and finger licking, all those things that happen, children touching them. I mean, even before COVID, you know, yeah, we've learned some things, haven't we, over the last year and a half? So even when we do bring those donuts back, they probably operate a little different, but I got one of the chocolate muffins we had in there, and I have a certain amount of calories that I eat every day, and so I had to get it. I had to look and see what the calories were. Quickly realized upon looking at the number on that Otis Spunkmeyer muffin, sacrifices that need to be made later in the day if I were to eat that now. I did it. I ate it, okay? So sacrifices will be made, and it was great. If it's your final meal, and you know it, you don't look at the calories. You don't care. Bring it all. I don't just soak it in as much grease as possible. Right? Pour garlic all over it. Like, make it as unhealthy as it can be. I, I don't care. Like, if it's a soft pretzel, I want the works. Put all of it on there. You have cinnamon sugar and powdered sugar, put them both on there. I don't care. Right? It's the last meal. That's the way most people are living their lives. They're not thinking about eternity when it comes to spirituality, when it comes to thinking about where they are investing and where they're laying up goods they're not thinking long term they're obsessed with the here and now and and the number one concern of most of the people around us is to preserve their own comfort and their own happiness but we should not live this way as believers the second lie is that material things can actually satisfy you this man in the parable has fallen for this myth that real life consists of what you own and what you have he thinks his money can do something for him and the things he owns can do something for him that in reality only god can do and that's what lies at the heart of all idolatry all idolatry, I, I, don't, I don't care what form it takes, all idolatry is where we take something and we say, this is going to do for me what only God can do. This is going to be a Savior to me. Now God sits on His throne yesterday, today, and forever. The things of this world are eaten up by rust and moths and are stolen by thieves this is what jesus says in matthew 6 do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal And yet, even though God is eternal and He sits on His throne yesterday, today, and forever, and these things clearly are going to end up in a yard sale or they're going to end up eaten up by moths or rusted or broken or thrown in the trash or whatever, we willingly will try to dethrone God and take these things and put them on the throne of our lives and bow down and worship them like some sort of modern-day golden calf thinking that the things of this earth, the possessions of this earth, the materials of this earth can actually do for us 
what God has promised to do and what only God can do. The eternal inheritance laid up for us in Christ is the total opposite. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And listen to this. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That is the complete opposite of the material things of this earth that are eaten up by by rust and, and by moth and that are destroyed. We've got to avoid these lies at all costs. The lie that the here and now is all that matters. The lie that material things can do for us what only God can actually do. We should avoid these lies. We should reject these lies. And and we should do it because of the great danger that comes with that mindset. Look in verse 20. Judgment comes for this man. God calls this man a fool. You fool. Now, we've talked about how... A fool is one of the worst things you could be called in biblical terms because it doesn't just mean you're unintelligent, which tends to be the way that we use it, but it means that you do not have wisdom. It means that you do not fear God. Um, It it means that uh, you do not control your mouth. It means that you're ashamed to your mother and father. Like All those things come with the word fool when we're talking about it in biblical terms. It is somebody who is spiritually senseless. Someone who lives with no reflection. Somebody who lives with no spiritual intelligence. Somebody who acts as if God is not there. It's the opposite of wisdom. It's the opposite of fearing God. This man clearly does not fear God. He fears not having his own flesh fed. He fears not having his own pleasures fulfilled. That's what he fears. Not God. And so... He's a fool because he's lived as if the here and now, that is, it's all that matters, and yet, this night, he will stand before God in judgment and his soul will be required from him. So he's going to die, and his soul, which he prayed to, right, is not actually in control. His soul is summoned to God's throne for judgment at God's command, which is why selfish ambition is so foolish. We treat ourselves like we're number one, like we're sovereign, we're preeminent. In reality, we only have as many breaths as God ordains and He permits. And when those breaths are up and you die, not only are you going to go before the throne of God, but what happens to your stuff, right? How much of it do you leave? It's just like John Rockefeller. You leave all of it. My parents have a friend. Now, this is a Christian brother, okay? And... and he, he's a good Christian man. He didn't do anything wrong, but I'm going to use this as an example. He worked really hard to set up having a beach house in Myrtle Beach. Worked really hard for that. They got it, got it all set up. And two months after they got it all set up down there, he had a heart attack and he died. Now, his wife is a Christian woman, so she's using the speech house to be generous, and she lets fellow church members go and stay there. I've gone and stayed there. It's really nice, but it did cross my mind when I was there. I thought, man, this brother worked so hard for all of this, and now somebody else is sleeping in his bed, and somebody else is driving his golf cart, and somebody else is living in his house. Which just goes to illustrate the point that these things you have prepared, whose will they be? 
You work for an abundance and die the very day your retirement begins. Who gets your stuff? Somebody else. And that's why I say retirement is a terrible idol. Because it can be your end-all, be-all, and you can live for it, and you can plan for it. There is no guarantee you'll even get to enjoy it. So in verse 21, we get this exhortation from Jesus. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What Jesus is saying here is there's a way where you, are, um, you can be open-handed towards your own soul. And by, you know what I mean by open-handed? Generous. You can be open-handed toward yourself, but you are closed-fisted toward God. That's what this man had done. To himself, he denied himself no pleasure. I mean, you can have it all. But he kept his hand closed toward the Lord. It's foolish sin. And Jesus is telling this guy who has come, and he's saying, Rabbi, tell my brother to split it up evenly between us. He's saying to this man, don't be eaten up by stuff like inheritance. Don't let that consume your thoughts. Don't let that be what you think about when you're going to sleep at night. Because ultimately, if you are open-handed towards yourself and you are closed-fisted toward God, then you're investing in the wrong place. And you're just as foolish as the man in the parable. Don't spend your time planning how to get rich quickly. Spend your time planning on how you're going to lay up treasure in heaven. Always breaks my heart when I see Christian people get involved in multi-level marketing schemes. If that hits too close to home for you this morning, I, I don't really apologize. You know, let, let the grenade hit where it needs to hit. It's, it's not all evil if, if you get involved in one of those things. It's not all evil and... and and I know you could do that and end up being generous, but you've got to be careful with that stuff, man, because what is the goal so often with that stuff? It's you've got to get rich quick. And it begins to consume you and takes away from the time where you are planning on how you're going to lay up your treasure in heaven. It takes your focus and it puts it on the wrong sphere. The New Testament warns us about this over and over and over, that what you're seeing is temporary, that this is all temporary, and that you should live for what is eternal. And in Luke 16, verse 11, Scripture says, if, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? Meaning, if you fail to use earthly money in a godly manner, why, why is God going to pour out His heavenly gifts on you? 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10. Here's Paul defending his ministry, telling the Corinthians they put no obstacles in anybody's way so the gospel could go forward. And one of the things that Paul did when he was in Corinth is he did not take money from them because he knew that would be an issue. Corinth was a really wealthy area. He knew money was a touchy subject. And if he took any money from them while he was there and he was preaching, that was going to be a problem. Plus, in Corinth, they had a lot of fancy speakers who would show up and talk about philosophy and things like that. And when they did that, they would get paid big bucks and he didn't want to be confused with them so he didn't take money he made tents on the side 
And so here's him explaining it. He says, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Meaning, he didn't mind being poor for the sake of the ministry if it meant heavenly treasure. Do you see how he had an eternal mindset? In James 5, verses 1-3, through 3, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. The last days are the time in between the cross and the return of Jesus. The resurrection and the, etern- the return of Jesus. So whenever anybody says, Pastor, do you think that we're living in the last days? Well, yes, absolutely. Does that mean Jesus is coming back? you know, before the next election cycle, hopefully, but we don't know, okay? We don't know. Um, It could come back, you know, 100, 200, 300, you know, 500 years from now, 1,000 years from now. We don't know, but these are the last days. This time in between the the resurrection and ascension of Jesus' return to the last days. And in these last days, if you know the return of Jesus is imminent, you know that Jesus could come back and you don't know the time or the hour, but he could come back. Why lay up your treasures in this world? Knowing that the second he returns, it's all it's gone. 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 19. As for the rich in this present age. By the way, we've we got to listen to this as Americans, okay? Compared to the rest of the world, most of us in this room are incredibly rich people. Okay? Incredibly rich people. But you can be rich and be a Christian... And there are specific instructions for the rich in this present age. And here they are. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, don't be proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So don't be proud. Don't put your hope in the stuff that you own. Do good works with the the money that you have. Be generous with what you have. Share what you have with others. And as you do that, it reflects a heavenly mindset and it shows the world that we are the sort of people who do not think that our lives consist of the things we own, that our life consists of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And we want to show the world through what we have that He is glorious by being generous, by sharing what we have. All this really comes down to what you treasure. We need to make sure we choose the right treasure. Whatever you treasure the most is going to be the organizing principle of your life. Understand that. Whatever you treasure the most, it will be the organizing principle of your life. In this parable, the man treasures wealth and the comfort it brings, and that organizes his entire life. Why does he want to do the work of tearing down the barns he has and building bigger barns? So that he may be comfortable and that he may hold on to his stuff. It organizes life. You know what I think this man in the parable treasures above everything? It's his own happiness which makes this probably the most American part of the Bible. Americans treasure happiness. Happiness is the organizing principle of so many people's lives. They just want to be happy. I mean, 
it's written in our DNA as Americans, right? What does the Declaration of Independence tell us? We're guaranteed life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That these are rights. And there's nothing wrong with that until it doesn't matter who you offend in the process of pursuing that happiness. It doesn't matter if you walk out in your family in pursuit of that happiness. It doesn't matter if you have sex with whoever you want to have sex with in pursuit of that happiness. It doesn't matter if you hurt people on your way to the all-satisfying holy grail of happiness. You even hear this when people look at other people's lives and they're kind of jealous and they undermine them on the basis of happiness. Well, she's got that house and that family and that car, but is she happy? You hear people say stuff like that all the time, right? It just shows you how much we value happiness. If you don't have happiness, you have nothing. And it organizes our lives. Most Americans gear everything toward this. How they spend their money, how they save their money, how they invest their money, how they think about their money. Money becomes the Savior that delivers happiness to them. But for the Christian... This present world and the happiness in it should not be the organizing force of our lives. The organizing principle of your life this morning is Jesus. We are not the center of the world. We realize that as believers. Christ is the center of everything. He's the point. He's the main event. It's all about Him. And if we understand that, if we understand that, and Christ is at the center of our world, and we see Him as infinitely more worthy than everything else, then Christ becomes the primary organizing factor of our lives. Money then is no longer a Savior. You know what money becomes if Jesus is the organizing principle of your life? Money becomes not a Savior, but a servant to making him look glorious. Money's a terrible savior, it's a great servant. Isn't that what that scripture in in 1 Timothy 6 was all about? Making money your servant? Make the money serve your generosity. Make uh, the money uh, serve your good works. Make the money serve your, your sharing with others. It's a servant. Everything in your life is not about your own happiness. It's about making Jesus look glorious. So when you have an abundance, your first question should not be, soul, should we build bigger barns? Your first question should be, God, what do you want me to do with it? It's your stuff. What do you want me to do with it? How do I use my abundance or my lack thereof? To make you look glorious. This particular sort of obedience, the obedience of generosity, pushes back against the greed and the covetousness that Jesus is warning about in this text. Generosity with the things we have is one of the most gospel-centered disciplines you can practice as a believer because it reflects the cross to the world around you. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. 
Paul writes that in a section of 2 Corinthians where they're collecting money to send to Jerusalem, to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. They were terribly impoverished, so he was collecting money from Corinth as well as other places, and they were going to take that to the poor Christians in Jerusalem and say, look, your brothers and sisters, uh, your non-Jewish brothers and sisters uh, all around uh, the continent love you, and we're bringing this to you to show you that they love you and they want to take care of you. And he wanted them to be generous. He actually tells them, like, don't let me show up with egg on my face in Jerusalem because you guys didn't give. All right? But when you give in that way, when you generously give, you're reflecting the cross because at the cross, Jesus generously laid his own life down so that we could have eternal life. So we are showing people what Jesus has done for us in a tangible manner when we are generous. It shows people we're willing to let go of material things if it means Jesus gets the glory. It shows people Jesus is the one organizing our lives. And there is joy in living like that. Now here's the great irony. People think there's joy in having money. And there's not. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 tells us, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. Let me sum up for you what Solomon has said here, because I love it. The more you have, the more you're going to want. So if you ever think, well, I'll just get this thing and then I'll stop buying stuff, that'll never happen. The more you have, the more you want. The more you have, the less you are satisfied. The more you have, the more people will come after it. If you've ever paid taxes, you know. The more you have, the more you realize it does no lasting good. The more you have, the more you worry about. That's P. Diddy, Mo Money, Mo Problems, right? He stole that from Solomon. The more you have, the more you can hurt yourself by holding on to it. The more you have, the more you have to lose. And the more you have, the more you will leave behind. Because there's nothing you could carry in your hands you can take out of this world. So where's all the supposed joy? And yet, if you hold the things of this world loosely and you are open-handed toward God and you are not stingy, that's where there is joy. Real, lasting joy. And the more you glorify God with your money, the more money, again, is a servant. It's a pathway to that joy. And the great thing about that is you could have $2 million or you could have $2 this morning. If you're using it to glorify God obediently, the end result is the same. Joy. There's no prerequisite to be rich to have joy. There's no prerequisite to be poor to have joy. The prerequisite is that Jesus is the organizing principle of your life and you are obedient to Him in your generosity. Remember the old hymn, At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight and now I am Happy all the day. Do you want happiness? That's where it's found. So where are you laying up your treasure this morning? Has your heart succumbed to the greed of this present age? 
Last year we were in a men's retreat, and I'll close with this. I heard a, a pastor there give this illustration. And he had uh, served our nation in the military, so I think it meant a lot to him uh, in particular, and maybe it will resonate with some of you who have served. But he just pointed out the fact that the guys who went to Normandy in World War II didn't stay and build houses on the beach. They didn't do that. You know, they, they all wanted to get home. That's what they all wanted. To go there, to fight, to fulfill the mission, and then to go home. They didn't build houses on the beaches of Normandy because they knew this is our battlefield. But this isn't home. And we ought to do the same. This present age, this world we're living in, this is our battlefield. This is where we, we fight to fulfill our mission. This is where we fight for the eternal glory of the Lord, right? This, this is where we fight to see souls saved. This is where we fight for our own holiness and our own joy. This is where we fight to see uh, the local church grow and advance the kingdom and, and, and see people converted and saved. This is our battlefield, but one day the Lord is going to call us home, and that's home. Home is in His presence, and that's where we need to lay up our treasure. Don't build beach houses on your battlefield. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll leave us with that thought. Father, I pray that we would not be like the man in the parable. I pray that we would not be atheistic in the way that we think about our money and the way that we deal with our, our things, the way that we um, look at this world, Lord, that we would not have a perspective where we're constantly thinking about more. Lord, this is a word for the rich among us, certainly. This is also a word for those who are struggling financially this morning because it's just as easy when you're struggling to think, well, if I just had these things, I'd be okay. When in reality, if we just have you, Jesus, we're going to be more than okay. We're going to be satisfied. We're going to be joyful. So, Father, give us the right mindset, a mindset where your son is the organizing principle of our lives. Don't let us be like the man in the parable. And I pray, Lord, that we would look at money and we would say it is, it is nothing but a servant to my ultimate purpose of making Jesus look glorious and finding joy in my obedience to him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.